Well, if you will take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Probably page one of your Bible outside of the table of contents and the preface, so it uh, shouldn't be a hard journey to find that one. This morning we're going to begin a series. It's going to be a short series, this three-part series, and I've entitled it Divided. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three areas of division that we see in our culture today. Uh, just three, three issues I believe are, are pivotal. I think they're um, really important, especially as we move toward an election cycle here in Virginia. And, and so I wanted to speak to the issue of abortion freedom and cancel culture. And I want to look at them really from the perspective of, uh, of the sanctity of human life, that human life is valuable, that it's important, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're going to look at a lot of that this morning. Also, I want to take it from the perspective of where, where the question was asked Jesus, what, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he added, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we're going to interact with people, and we want to do so in a way that brings honor to the Lord and honors them because they're made in the image and likeness of God, we want to love them as we would love ourselves. So keep those two principles, those two ideas uh, at the forefront of what we're going to look at over the next three Sundays. Um, just want to say at the beginning here, if you're new to Red Lane and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I just walked in here for the first time, and here's this political preacher, he's probably going to say a bunch of political stuff, and I'm not really ready for that, and he's going to probably add on to it a bunch of, you need to give to this and this and this. That's not who I am. That's not who we are as a church. Primarily, uh, I told someone this the other day, uh, probably 40 to 45 Sundays a year are expositional, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And then from time to time, uh, we will add in some sort of more topical series and yet still come at it from an exegetical uh, standpoint. In other words, I'm not proof texting things. I want to look at the text and see what it says and, and, and preach from that. And so we do believe this is important from time to time to speak to certain issues, whether it be family, marriage, finances, just how can y'all be a better steward as, as someone who's been given great things from the Lord? And then in seasons like this, uh, usually just want to prepare God's people. Uh, the elders and I, we are the shepherds of this church. And so we believe it's important that we help you, help us think biblically and theologically uh, about the issues that we are constantly facing. And so that's what this is all about. So that's the disclaimer statement, all right? just want to be on record that this is not who we are. We're not uh, some ultra right, even though we're pretty right when it comes to <laughs> biblical theological things. We're not in any way uh, liberal or progressive from no standpoint, but we're not a political church. We're a gospel church. Amen? Amen. And so keep that in mind as we look at this today. I saw a statement uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I listened to a podcast. I guess I should say I heard a statement. Then I actually went back and read the transcript. But I listened to a podcast uh, Monday through Friday. It's called The Briefing. Sometimes I will use that and, and, and share some thoughts. The podcast is, is Dr. Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's his podcast. And what he does is he takes issues that are happening in our culture, and he tries to look at them from a biblical theological perspective and, and give a, a Christian per, a viewpoint, a Christian perspective on the issue. And so he made this statement a few weeks ago. He said this, any conservatism that doesn't start with the principle of the sanctity of human life is not a conservatism worthy of our support. So when I heard that statement, I mean, obviously, hopefully like you, it grabbed my attention. I'm like, well, I can agree with that. I, I can get behind that statement. 
You see, conservatives must hold to the philosophical position of the sanctity of human life. And the reason for it is because it's first and foremost not a political issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It is a theological issue because the Word of God addresses it. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So this church, if you think about who we are, we consist of members who are evangelical conservatives, all right? Now, I know your mind immediately goes to, well, they're Republicans. Uh, They ride around on elephants as opposed to blue donkeys, and and that's who they are. Well, many of us probably would vote in that line. I would say that for the most part in my, man, it's been a long time since I've been voting, but since 1996, I've largely voted, if not always voted, Republican. But it's not because of the party. It's because of the platform and how it aligns to the biblical teaching about issues. All right? So I'm not here to say you got to toe the line for a political party. I would say don't do that. What I'm trying to do this morning is help us and the next two Sundays to think biblically and theologically about issues in our culture so that when we do go to the polls and exercise our right and responsibility as citizens, we can do so responsibly and in a way that would bring honor and glory to the Lord. And so we are a church that consists of evangelical conservatives. That's what I, what I mean by that is we're biblical and theological in that sense. We believe the Bible is inspired. Amen? We believe that God has breathed it. Second, Second Timothy chapter 3, that God has breathed the Word of God. It, it comes from Him. He is the source, and it's, it's flowing through those authors. We believe the Bible is infallible. It's without error, right? It, it can't have any errors, does not have any errors in it. We also believe that what it says about life, about living life, are authoritative and good. We, we are conservative also, not just in the theological sense, in the biblical sense, we're conservative in the grammatical sense. If you take the word conservative and you look at the definition, it, it means mean adverse to change or averse to innovation. It means holding traditional values. So what do I mean by the fact that we are conservative grammatically? It means that we believe what the Bible says and we're not seeking to change it. We're not seeking to tweak it to fit what we want to believe or what culture says we ought to believe. We take it at face value. We take it as inspired. We take it as authoritative. We take it meaning what it says. Unfortunately, in many social circles today, conservative ideas and conservative perspectives, they're not popular. Uh, Many times we want to kind of hide that behind us. We want to walk and, and not really proclaim that to people. We're mocked, we're banned, we're canceled in favor of newer and more progressively sensitive ideas. You see, people who embrace this perspective believe that anyone who holds to those archaic beliefs need to get with the times. They need to grab hold of the new and the enlightened ideas of postmodern thought. There's an old adage that when I think of what I just mentioned there, when I think of we got to grab hold of the new, there's an old adage that comes to my mind. What's new is not true, and if it's true, it's probably not new. You ever heard a person make a statement like that? That just because it's new doesn't mean it's true. Many times, because it is new, it's precisely not true. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. So everything that we see today in our modern, modern culture, what is it? It's just a repackaging of the old. It's just a repackaging of a bygone philosophy. And so likewise, the division that we're experiencing within our society today, it's not new. 
It's, it's been around in every age and in every society. There's been this type of division, this type of, of divided ideas and philosophies and, and a clashing of philosophy there. And so it would do us well to remember this reality. It would do us well to remember that we're not experiencing anything new if you look at history. The reality, however, is that we are a deeply divided nation. You agree with that? We're not just a deeply divided nation. We're a deeply divided state. The Commonwealth of Virginia is deeply divided. I mean, I hear people say all the time, well, that's those Northern Virginia people, right? Or that's those people in Richmond. They don't represent us. We're a divided state. We're a divided county, right? There's people that that don't align philosophically. They don't align politically. They don't align on on much of anything right here in our own backyard. In the summer of 2020, just a little over a year ago, I said over and over in that series that we went through for six weeks on faith and culture, I, I told you that we're walking through some very dark, dark days told you that there's a growing frustration, a growing unrest among the people within our nation. And so the division is evident everywhere. I mean, you look at it. It's it's divided all across the board. It's not changed since then. And so what are we divided over? Well, we're divided over COVID, about everything that, that, that relates to COVID, right? You go into a room, you just don't know how to react because you have one, you have one set of ideas in regards to the response toward COVID and you know that other person or those people have their own ideas about that and so you're just not sure where you line up with them. We're divided over COVID. We're divided politically. We're divided racially. We're divided spiritually. Uh, We are right now in a fight for the soul of America. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out who we are going to become. This is what's at stake. And this is why people are clashing against one another as they fight for what they believe America should be. I uh, hesitate to even mention this, but I get emails now that I'm serving in an interim role on the school board. I, I get emails from people from both sides of any, perspe- any spectrum that there is. And so I, I will get emails saying, you need to represent me. I'm like, I'm trying. But what you're saying, someone else on the other side is saying, you need to represent me. And I'm like, you can't win. And so I'm trying, we're, we're trying to listen to all of this and, and yet lead with conviction and lead with values and lead in perspective and, and the direction that we believe is the best. That's what we're trying to do. We are divided. Sadly, I believe we've only become more divided in the last 18, 20 months. So as Christians, as those who have been transformed by the blood of Christ, as those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, we want to see our nation unified. We want to see our country come together. We want to see our nation and our people experience peace and harmony and have that replace the hatred and the violence that is so rampant in many areas. So the temptation for us as Christians, as those who are evangelical conservative, is to compromise. It's to bend in the area of conviction. It's to change our morals. Philosophical and ideological transformation is what is demanded of us from those who are not aligned with us. They want us to 
change. They want us to mold ourselves into mainstream culture, and yet bowing to the wishes of the progressives and surrendering our convictions. Is that the best thing for our nation? I would submit this morning that it's not. Yes, I want to see unity. Yes, I believe we need unity in our nation, perhaps like never before. But compromise, we know, is is often needed for unity to take place. But there are times and there are things, there are ideas that we simply cannot and must not compromise on. We must hold the line. Instead, we need to uphold the Bible rather than compromise. And we need to preach the Bible rather than compromise. And we need to hold it high as the standard for how to live and relate with each other rather than watering it down and diluting it, rather than marginalizing it and just kind of giving lip service to it. We need to stake our lives upon it and stand there. During this election season, this reality becomes even that much more essential. You see, when we go to the polls to cast a vote, many of you probably have already voted. But as you go to cast your vote as a Christ follower, you and I are participating in the democratic process. Think about this, that shapes our country. We're participating in the process that shapes our state. It shapes our county. It shapes the culture in which we live. Many times, I don't know about you, but I've went to the polls thinking, this won't make a difference. I'm just one lone voice. And yet if we give into that understanding, we lose that voice, which actually does make a difference. And so we must exercise that right. We must exercise that responsibility, and we must do it responsibly. You see, your primary influence in voting should not be the letter of the alphabet that follows the candidate's name. Your primary influence should not be your pocketbook. It should not be your favorite political or social issue. No, what ought to drive the way you vote is the Bible. It ought to be your biblical and theological convictions. That's what ought to drive you as you go to the ballot box and cast a ballot for a candidate. So it's election season here in Virginia. You, you, know, you know that? You watch TV much lately? It's interesting. You, you watch TV. I mean, it's right in the, you're in the middle of a ball game. You're like, man, I, gotta, ooh, I can't wait for this, this commercial to get over, for my team to get back, and, and we can begin to move that ball. we got to score, and you get hit with back-to-back commercials. you, you got a Yunkin, and you got a, a McAuliffe, and you got other candidates for these positions. It's back-to-back. It's election season here. So we're going to vote. Think about this. We're going to vote on three very key seats in just a couple of weeks. They're the governor, they're the lieutenant governor, and the attorney general. Regardless of who wins, these executive seats, they will transform the state of Virginia as we move forward, and they're going to do so in a profound way. So as we prepare to participate in our civil duty, I I want to use these three Sundays to offer a biblical perspective on divisive issues that I believe Christians ought to consider as they vote. You say, I've already voted. Well... You still need to hear them because there's another election coming here pretty soon. Next year, actually. Um, So these issues, I believe, we're confronted with on a daily basis. 
I'm not so sure that they are confusing issues, but they are issues that are surrounded with a lot of noise. In fact, there's a ton of noise out there these days. And for that reason, it can be difficult to drown out that noise. It can be difficult to to just be able to hear from God's voice, hear from his word, and understand how that ought to influence you to exercise that right. And so we're going to examine these three issues, these three areas. Um, And like I said earlier, all of them are, are, are going to fit under that umbrella of the sanctity of human life, All life is valuable, it's special, it's created in the image of God, and therefore, that second principle, I I need to love others as I love myself, the second greatest commandment. So we value life because it's created. That's why we need to talk about abortion. And when we talk about abortion, abortion, we are talking about the value of human life, right? You know that. We're not just talking about some set of cells. We're not talking about a glob of tissue. We're talking about the value of human life. And so I have told you before, as your pastor, I've told you that we discover in the first three chapters much of what we need to understand about the value of human life. See, what we read there in those chapters helps us understand how to respond to these cultural issues. It teaches us how we need to view them, how we need to look at them, how we need to to learn about them and, and understand them, especially this issue of abortion. If we get Genesis wrong, we get the view of life wrong. I wasn't alive, but some of you were. 1973, you probably remember this if you were old enough. The Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in that infamous Roe versus Wade case. Since that dark day, more than 62 million unborn babies have been aborted. Over the last 48 years, the slaughter of the unborn has steadily become more and more mainstream. Back then when it first took place, it was still taboo. You didn't talk about it a whole lot. But in those 48 years, more and more and more, abortion has become mainstream. It's become accepted. It's become the typical way you deal with an unwanted pregnancy. People understand it. Oh, wait, I understand. You're not ready to have a family. Of course you're going to have an abortion. That's where the American mindset is on this issue. And in fact, it's not just a a typical mindset. It is the platform of one of our two parties. It is the platform of the Democrat Party. I said this to you last January when I preached on the sanctity of human life. Here's what we know about the Democrat Party. Governor Cuomo and the Democrats there in New York, the Congress there, who gave a standing ovation, standing there in the Senate chamber after they passed the New York Health Act in January 2019, legalizing abortion all the way up through birth. Here in our own state, our own governor, a Democrat, is on record right after that supporting late-term abortions through birth and even in the few moments after birth. Don't tell me it's not a platform in that political party. Because it's a platform there, it is mainly a a strong philosophy that people are believing in and adhering to all throughout our society. What we read in Genesis is that life is its main subject. That's what we learned from this great book. So the giving and the preservation of life provides this, the thesis for this great book. It tells the story of God's commitment to life. And as we examine the cultural and the divisive issue of abortion, we need to understand this about the Lord and his word. God always stands on the side of life. Always. Without exception. Unequivocal. 
standing on the side of life. And so let's look at these two sides, and I'm going to give you a, a Christian response or a set of Christian response to it. First of all, let's look at this idea of human life. Look there in Genesis. I told you to turn there, and you're thinking, is this guy ever going to get there? Eventually. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Three things I want you to see here real quickly about human life. First of all, human life is created by God. Human life is created by God. Now, secular thought today would lead us to believe that humanity has evolved. You, you know this. Many of you learned this in school. It has evolved from, from a single-celled organism over billions and billions of years. And yet the contrary is what the Bible tells us. The Bible instructs us that humanity was created not over billions of years, but in one day. Yom is the Hebrew word for a 24-hour period. That's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1. God on day 6 created animal life, and in that created humanity. Adam and Eve, like the rest of creation, were formed by the creative hand of God. Why is that significant? It's because we're not accidents. Human life, and for that matter, all of life, is not an accident. It's not some collision of molecules. It's not some, some evolution of cells. It is the divine intervention of a holy God that formed humanity. So the first and the focal point of biblical teaching concerning the creation of humans is this fact of divine creation. This fact is not just represented in Genesis 1 and 2. We see it throughout Scripture. In fact, it is described 15 times throughout the Bible where God is set there as the one who created. Psalm 100 verse 3 is an example of this. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Who created us? God created us. Where did you come from? It wasn't some slimy, slimy oozy uh, pond that you were there as some amoeba that began to, to evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve, and, and somehow miraculously you have this incredibly complex human system that works beautifully. It's not some sort of, wow, everything kind of orchestrated in such a way that everything has its seasons in creation. No, God created that. Why are the leaves beginning to turn and fall right now? It's October. It happens every October, right? How does that happen? A divine, holy, creative, good God said this is good. There ought to be a whole lot more amens than this. This is good preaching. <laughs> I had a two weeks off. So humans are created by God. No one is an accident. Humans have intrinsic value, eternal value, solely because they're created by God. Second thing I want you to see about human life, it bears the image of God. Human life bears the image of God. 
So as I've told you before, the creation account here in Genesis is deliberately structured to reach its apex, not with other aspects of creation, but with humans. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, you just look at the grammar. It says over and over again throughout the six days of creation, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. It comes to the creation of Adam and Eve, and God says, let us make. I don't see a difference there. There's a big difference there. He says, let there be, and then when he comes to humanity, the Trinity begins to deliberate and says, let us make. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. We read that in the text. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. I've told you before, because I've preached this extensively. If you haven't figured it out, I love the book of Genesis. The word for image is the word salem. It means to carve. It means to cut off. It is a very concrete term, and God here in his word couples it with the term demuth, which means likeness, or that's how it's translated. It refers to the similarity in the abstract or in the ideal. And so what God is saying here is in Adam and Eve, in you and I, we are created in the image of God. It is a concrete thing. But so that we don't think we are God, he couples it to likeness gives a little abstract abstractness there so that we understand there's something of the divine in me and yet i'm not divine well what does that tell us you have value you have intrinsic worth intrinsic value not because you did something but because you've been made in the image of someone we bear the image of god it's the imago day number three Human life represents the sovereignty of God. Going back to verse 28, the Bible says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's talking to Adam and Eve. Subdue it and have dominion. So as the one aspect of creation which bears the image and the likeness of God, humans are representing God's sovereignty on this earth. Through their children, Adam and Eve were instructed to fill the earth, to subdue it as God's regents, as stewards, as managers. The Bible here teaches us that God is omnipresent, or the Bible teaches us that he is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. And so how does that play itself out? Through humanity, of feeling the earth. Well, we bear the image and likeness of God. So in essence, when we are doing what we're doing, we're representing the sovereignty of God on this planet. That's what human life does. That's why when we look at abortion and the reason we need to stand against it wholeheartedly and with deep conviction is because there's, a, there's an aspect of the sovereignty of God at play. Let me talk to you about that. Let's talk about abortion. Abortion, or we can say the killing of the unborn, is the antithesis of human life. Three things I want to say about that. First of all, abortion is the murder of a being created by God. Look with me in Psalm 139. I may have messed our screen people up upstairs because I didn't read this passage a while ago and I didn't tell them I was going to move it. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you, were formed my, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. According to what we see here in Psalm 139, the cell formed in a woman's uterus at conception is so much more than that medically cold term, embryo. 
Now, scientifically, medically, biologically, we can get behind the term embryo. But you read the Word of God, it is a whole lot more than just an embryo. Do you see that? You feel that? See, it's not just a cell that has the potential to become a living human being. On the authority of the Word of God, it is a human being at conception. We understand the biology involved in fertilization. But may we never allow the science to marginalize the sovereignty involved in conception. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, we as Christians, as those who believe the Bible, we do not think that what the psalmist here is saying is that God is up in heaven knitting us together like he's knitting us off. That's not what we're understanding here. This is, this is metaphorical language. It's speaking of how God is intricately creating us. But how does he do that in Genesis 1? Let there be. Let us make. He speaks it into existence, and it happens. He doesn't need to take his knitting utensils. I don't know. Needles. Is that what they're called, you ladies or men who knit? Want to be politically correct? It's a joke. Bear with me on this political day. Abortion um, murders, kills, kills being created by God. Secondly, it destroys the image of God. Through the creation of man, what do we see in Genesis again? We see God's image is expressed, it's on display. Remember, let us make according to our image and likeness. And so God is represented on the earth through humanity. So when a baby is aborted in the womb, that child's opportunity to reflect God's glory, to reflect his goodness before the world, that opportunity is removed from him or her. You might think of it as going to a factory that manufactures mirrors, and, and you're standing there at the end of the conveyor belt, the end of the, 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 uh, the, the assembly line, and those mirrors are coming along, and you're just taking them one by one and smashing them on the ground. They never have the opportunity to be used and reflect the glory and the goodness, the beauty of the one who's in the mirror. That's what abortion is. It destroys the image of God. See, when a baby is murdered in the womb of its mother, that image is destroyed. This image ought to help us understand the culture of death we are living in today. And who is orchestrating it? Who wants to destroy the image of God more than anyone else in this world? Satan himself. He wants to destroy that. Who's behind all of this? Satan. Remember, Ephesians tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we don't wrestle against a different political party. We don't wrestle against a government system. We don't wrestle against philosophies. We wrestle against an enemy, and his name is Satan. And he's got a lot of demons. And he's got a lot of things happening. You know, I look at what's happening in our country, and it's really global. It's not just in our nation. I'm thinking, how can all of these things just be blowing up and, and just creating such chaos? There's no way, humanly speaking, that all these people can get behind it. Because there's many times, I'll just be honest, I've become very skeptical in a lot of ways. I'm thinking there is a cabal. I've been watching too much Blacklist over the last eight years, if you know that show. I'm like, there's a cabal out there. They're orchestrating this. Well, there might be some of that. Who knows? But I do know there is a cabal. His name is Satan. And he's working behind the scenes you know, in, in ways, that, in areas, and in, in things that we can't see with physical eyes. He is behind it, whispering, casting doubt, bringing questions there. 
because he wants to destroy the image of God. Number three, I gotta hurry. I really gotta hurry. Abortion usurps the sovereignty of God. So the Bible makes it clear that God alone has the authority to give and take life. Uh, remember, in Eden, here in, in the creation account, God warns Adam, there in chapter 2, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat of this tree, first of all, he says this, hey, it's all for you. Enjoy. James' version of that. We're going to deal with this next week. He says, it's all there for you, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you do, or if you do eat of it, you will surely die. Well, who's... Who's got the authority to kill? God does. Right there in the very beginning of the word of God, we see that God holds the authority, the power, the, the ability to take life. We see elsewhere that death is the payment for sin. That's what he's saying in Genesis 2. Romans 6, 6.23 brings clarity there. Now, as we read through the Bible, many times in the Old Testament what we see is that God's people were instructed to go to war. They were to go and actually annihilate peoples. And, and we look at that from our day, our modern day, and we're looking back thinking, how is that moral? How is that ethical? Well, it's ethical because God has sovereignly called a people to himself, and he's using them as an instrument to bring judgment on those who are in rebellion. We don't have time to get into that. That's a whole other sermon series. God has the power and the authority to say, go and do that. So from that, we get this... this uh, idea, this, this understanding that power of the state government comes, the authority of the government comes from the Lord. We also see uh, a prohibition, though, on innocent life being taken. Genesis, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments, God says, you will not, you shall not murder. Both the Old and New Testaments as I said, we see this, this power, this authority seated in the government. It comes from the Lord. And so it's the Lord who authorizes the taking of human life by the power of the state in capital punishment, in war. Again, don't have time to get into that, but it's there. We also see that the Bible legalizes the taking of life in the situation of personal defense. We could go to Exodus chapter 22 too. So there are some instances in Scripture where humans are, are, are told or called to respond with lethal force or lethal punishment, okay? But it's always backed by the authority of the Word of God and the sovereign hand of of God. Nowhere, though, in Scripture does the Bible give permission for the taking of innocent life. In fact, there's great prohibition for that. In the, in, the, in, in the law given to Israel as they're trying to set everything up through Moses, God warns them to not take innocent life. When they captured a people and, and they surrendered, they were not to just march them out to the guillotine or march them off a cliff because they had surrendered. There was morals and ethics there. I can't think of any person more innocent than that of an unborn baby. So when a baby is murdered in the womb of its mother, what happens? Innocent life is taken, and God's sovereignty is usurped. It's seized. You're doing something that God has never said for you to do. So the parents and the doctor are putting themselves in the place that rightly belongs only to God. So human life, abortion. Let me give you three Christian responses to abortion, and I'm going to try to do it in about 10 minutes. So as we are going to think about this response, we again need to reiterate that we must believe the Bible. We must preach the Bible. We must 
hold it up as the standard of how we're to live and how we're to relate to one another. We must not bow down to the winds of culture. Instead, what we need to do is always stand strong and lead our culture to change by surrendering to God's plan. What does that look like? Well, we have to think biblically. And our response to abortion is going to be sifted through the filter of our biblical and theological worldview. So here we go, three Christian responses to abortion. Number one, a Christian response upholds the sanctity of life. We're going to hold it up high. What does that mean? Well, it means I understand as a Christian and a person who believes the Bible that human life has intrinsic value. It has intrinsic value. It means it's there. It's, it's not added to it because you reach a certain age. You don't have value because you have a certain skin color. You don't have value because you come from a certain uh, pedigree. You don't have value because you grew up on the certain side of the county. It doesn't mean you have value because you got a certain degree or you hold a certain position in government or in a company. No, you have intrinsic value every single human life. That's what we believe. That's our response. We're going to stand there regardless of how the winds of culture will blow around us. It means that as we uphold the sanctity of human life, we understand that gender grounds and further adds value to our life. I'm not even, I don't even have time to deal with this, but we read it in the text there in Genesis 1, verse 27. He made them male and female. He does not make a mistake. Now, I get it that there's a lot of gender confusion that's out there. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. We got to get back to the Bible on this. Love people where they are. Move them to where they need to be. Gender is something that helps them understand the value that God has placed in them as a human being. Third part of this upholding the sanctity of human life is the understanding that life is precious. Every life. Every single life it's precious. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. That leads us to a second response. The Christian response protects every life in the womb. So no unborn baby should be aborted for any reason. Whoa, back the train up there, pastor. Every single life should be preserved. No abortion should be legalized or available. That's what I mean by that. Every single life is protected, should be protected, why? It has intrinsic value. Well, they, what if our child has a de deformity? What if our child doesn't have certain things? Maybe they come out with, I saw a thing yesterday on um, um, game day. I was watching game day before all the college ball, football started, and they had on there a receiver from Kentucky. Yeah, from Kentucky. He's got five fingers on this hand. He's got six on this, and they work, all six of them. He said all for his whole life, you probably saw this, he saw for his whole life people have made fun of him. And, and then there's a Kentucky teacher who's a, a Kentucky fan, and she's got two students in her class, her elementary class. They have the same uh, disability, if you will. And so they brought him in, he talked to him about it, all that stuff. God, God didn't make a mistake in that. And if anything else, he gave him an advantage. He's a receiver. He's got more fingers now. <laughs> right? Make more money that way. God doesn't make a mistake. Every life is precious, which means every life ought to be protected. And so as Christians, we can easily understand that abortions are wrong in most situations. But think about this. We might struggle with them in other situations. Think about where the mother's life is threatened. That's the one that's always thrown in our face. And that would be an incredibly difficult decision. I understand that. 
It's never happened to us. We've never faced that. But I can't imagine being faced with that decision that the doctors are telling us, Kara and I, hey, if you carry this baby to term, it's likely you're going to die. We may be able to preserve the child, but we probably won't be able to preserve you. I, don't, I can't imagine going through that decision. But here's what I think we need to do. We can't be driven by emotional feelings in the moment. The way we ought to prepare for that moment, if it ever came, is that I'm going to do what the Word of God would tell me to do, and it says every life is precious. And who am I to step in and be the executioner? Who am I to step in and sovereignly take the seat that only rightfully belongs to God? What I would challenge people today, Christians especially, is if you're faced with a situation like that, just say, Lord, I don't know how this is going to shake out, but I believe that life is precious. And I'm just going to, by faith, walk with you. If this, this baby it doesn't, isn't carried to term and dies in the womb, God, your sovereign hand is all of that. If this baby is carried to term and is born with deformities or or, or any sort of issue there mentally or or physically, God, you be sovereign there. And if it perhaps jeopardizes the life of my wife, or speaking from her perspective, my life, God, you be sovereign there. I'm going to walk during these difficulties. I'm not saying this is easy stuff. Man, even as I say this, I'm thinking, I can't even fathom walking through those decisions. But I can't be driven by my emotions. I can't be driven by my feelings. I have to be driven by truth. And if God is sovereign, then we have to trust his sovereignty. Amen? That's what I believe we should believe about situations like that. So we must protect all life in the womb. As a church, as a Christian community, we need to provide counsel and help pregnant women and fathers who are going through situations like this where they're finding themselves pregnant, obviously of their own doing, but they don't know what to do next. And so we need to help them. That's why crisis pregnancy centers like our own here, the Pregnancy Resource Center of Metro Richmond, comes alongside and provides an incredible ministry to help those who are struggling with the decision, helps them to, to, to preserve life. They need our support. We also need to advocate for adoption and foster care. We need to give people options. The only option on the table should not be death. It should be life. Life. I can tell you all kinds of people who would love to adopt, but it's out of their reach. I mean, why is adoption so stinking expensive? Excuse my language this morning, but it's ridiculous. Why is it so expensive? Ricky, you know all about this. He's got like 400 kids. To God be the glory, right? (laughs) Why is it so expensive as a culture? Why why are we doing this? It makes no sense to me. Why not make it more affordable? I know I'm preaching to the choir on this. People who have no power outside of a vote, amen? A vote. We need to declare every life is precious, take steps to protect and enrich every life. Leads us to a third response. The Christian response works to change the law in order to preserve life. This is really where I wanted to drive the train in this message this morning. The Christian response ought to work to change the law in order to preserve life. In just a matter of weeks, in early December, the Supreme Court will hear a case regarding a law that was passed in Mississippi back in 2018. The law bans abortions after 15 weeks. 
The Mississippi law there, as well as the recent Texas abortion law that was signed, uh, are two of the strongest challenges to that awful decision back in 1973, Roe versus Wade. So as Americans, and more importantly as Christians, think about this. Do these laws, do these court cases matter? They absolutely matter. And they need to matter to us. As Christians, we stand on the Word of God, and we want to use it to persuade people's hearts to understand the evil of abortion. If you haven't picked up on what I'm doing this morning, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to persuade you to think biblically and theologically about this social issue and to say, this is the way we ought to think. I can't force you to think that way. Boy, I would if I could. I'd be a dictator. I'd come in your brain, and I'd, change. I'd pull out all that junk, and I'd throw in all the good stuff. I can't do that. I can only try to persuade. And that's what we want to do in our culture. We want to persuade. But is that all that we can and should do? No. We have a vote. Remember? This is election season. We have a vote. You say, well, I'm outvoted by all those other people. You still have a vote. And if we'll pray, if we'll exercise our duty, I don't know what God would do, but we'll trust him for that, right? We need to work to change the law in order to preserve life. So we have a moral, we have an ethical, and we have a biblical responsibility to protect the lives of the unborn. And the way we protect the unborn is through the changing of the law. That's what we have to do. It's not just through persuasion. We have to change the law. And so this is the, the essence of what it means to be conservative. Go back to that statement I began with by Dr. Moeller. Any conservatism that doesn't start with the principle of the safety of human life is not a conservatism worthy of our support. Amen? If you're not willing to change the law, then it doesn't matter what you say you believe in. Because here's what the other side's doing, changing the law. I'm 43 years old. I've seen a lot happen in 43 years. Those of you who are older than that, we won't even go into how old you are. You've seen a whole lot more. I remember the days of watching like Adam's Family and the Monsters on TV. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Now you turn the TV. I don't even watch some shows anymore. I, I, here's my point. Here, here's, here's my stance on Survivor. Karen and I have always watched Survivor. I think I've missed two seasons out of 21 seasons, except this one. This will be number three. Man, they're, so, they're pushing such a liberal agenda that is antithetical to the biblical worldview that we say we believe that I can't even watch it anymore. It came on as a commercial yesterday. I was watching football. I'm like, now nah, you ain't watching that. I turn it off in the middle of the first episode this season. Things are changing. They're pushing that stuff. And it's not just a cultural. It is legal. We need to vote to change the law. So what it means is that we really, if we're really pro-life, you're not going to be, you're not really pro-life. You don't really have pro-life convictions if you don't make it a matter of changing the law because it's a matter of life and death. We're divided. States divided county of Palatine is divided. We know this. You watch the news. You see things on social media. We're divided. Division is taxing on society. That's why we want to get unity so bad. It's stress, stressful. It casts uncertainty over everything. And so for us, what, that ha what happens is it brings a level of pressure, a level of tension, a level of, uh, of trying to move us to compromise because we're willing to, to do almost whatever it takes to, to find unity. But how can we have unity if we biblically and our convictions can't get on board with that? 
I'm not saying, I'm not even coming close to saying take up arms and march or, or, or do any of those things. Definitely not arms. I'm just saying that for hyperbole. But I'm not saying let's go and pick it and, and do all those things. But I'm saying this, man, let's stand on the word of God and say, I will not and I cannot and I must not go in that direction. I'm going to hold the line right here. I'm going to act for change. I'm going to move for change. I'm going to vote for change. Why? Because God is a God of life. And we as his people are going to celebrate and protect life, all of life. And we're going to work for that change and do everything we possibly can. Amen? Our God is God of life.